0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Will Johnson. For more than 30 years, Will has taught Buddhist meditation and, as a trained rolfer, applied Ida Rolf's somatic healing principles. He's the founder and director of the Institute for Embodiment Training, which combines Western somatic practices with Eastern meditation techniques. He's the author of the book, The Posture of Meditation, and the spiritual practices of Rumi. And with Sounds True, a new audio learning series titled Awakening the Body, the Path of Somatic Surrender, where listeners attune naturally to the many subtle dimensions of physical sensation and move effortlessly into the unified field of pure sensation, the realm of the liberated body and self. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Will and I spoke about balancing the auditory, visual, and tactile fields of perception and how this balance opens us to all experience. We also talked about Will's experience as a professional rolfer and how that has informed his work in embodiment training. And finally, we explored the Sufi practice of gazing and how gazing relates to embodiment. Here's my conversation with Will Johnson. Will, you introduced a word to me in your program with Sounds True that I find very interesting somatophobia, that we live in a culture that you say is somatophobic. So tell me what this means for a culture to be somatophobic.
1: Well, okay. Uh, Yeah, fine. I mean, essentially, uh, you know what I view. Within our culture, the uh, the entered into experience of body, the you know simply the you know giving feeling presence permission to present itself uh, is considered taboo, and you know I do believe that we're literally uh, you know fearful and irritated around uh, you know in other words the phobic part of this you know around this extraordinary feeling presence that tragically has been. You know, rendered you know taboo. You know, really for a long, long time in you know many of the developed cultures on the planet. And you know, to give you just a you know touch of background on that, you know, where my inquiry into all this starts. You know, early on in my twenties when I started, you know, frankly re-inhabiting my body. And what I mean by that is recognizing that you know I wasn't just a floating mind in space but this actual physical body had substance, tactility, uh, palpability, corporeality. You could feel it. It's a feeling presence. And, you know, what I you know, got to realizing is that there is sensation, uh, you know, it's tactile, on every single part of the body down to the smallest cell. And, you know, if you hold out a hand with your palm up, you can feel this very, very uh, uh, easily. You can feel that shimmer at the... Uh, you know, the vibratory, uh, you you know, quality of body. And even though these sensations are unbelievably small in size and they oscillate at unimaginably rapid rates of vibratory frequency, we can still very clearly and precisely feel this as energetic flow. So, uh, you know, the inquiry becomes if these sensations are there all the time, and then what I started experiencing was that the more I gave myself permission to actually feel them you know something the better that felt in my body and the clearer it you know I would become in, uh, you know in my mind so if these sensations exist and they you know their embrace you know create such a wholesome effect why don't we feel them and that you know the answer to why don't we feel them is that we have kind of a a large door that says danger don't enter taboo uh, you know don't go anywhere near this uh, surrendering to this extraordinary uh, uh, feeling presence of the body. And that is, you know, kind of in a nutshell, you know, the origin of what I, you know, called in in a sense the somatophobic, uh, you know, bias of our culture.
0: So what is it that we're afraid of, whether it's as individuals or as a culture?
1: Yeah, uh, it's, I think it's the potency of, you know, what sits uh, you know, in the bodies of, you know, every one of us. We, you know, surrender to these deep, deep energies, uh, you know, these extraordinarily rich uh, webs of sensation. And, you know, what starts happening is that consciousness shifts. And, you know, what tends to occur is, uh, you know, what I call the quality of consciousness that passes as normal in the world at large, which is you know, essentially a somewhat, you know, fairly disembodied consciousness. Most of us, much of the time, we get lost in the thought stream, the, you know, semi-conscious, involuntary internal monologue of the mind. You know, all of those thoughts, and we have very little awareness of, you know, the, the tactile presence that I'm. Uh, referring to, and I I'd, I'd argue even further that when we're off and lost in the mind, we're not really seeing so much of what's in front of us or hearing what's here to be heard. But having said that, it's the tactile field that is really that we're literally the most out of uh, uh, you know out of touch with. So uh, you know, making the shift from this place that we're very very familiar, which is essentially a kind of disembodied consciousness, into a more natural, uh, accepting, relaxed into embodied consciousness. It does. It involves a kind of radical shift in how we experience ourselves, how we experience our relationship to the world. And it, you know, it, it, you know, it, when you take this to a spiritual extreme, you you know can open yourself to you know some sayings like, like out of out of the Sufis who say, you know, what we all have to do. We've got to die before we die, and and that's actually the way that we come alive. And what they mean by that is letting go, this quality of consciousness that passes as normal in the world at large, what the Sufis call the consciousness of separation, and make the shift into a more dissolved, merged, uh, you know, natural condition. But it's scary, you know, letting go of that oh so familiar place of knowing who I am. And you know, literally feeling it uh, dissolve away into another dimension. That yes, it's uh, it's very very nice there, and one can function very very well there. But it's different, and it's uh, it's scary for most of us. You know, we cling. I mean, this is basic uh, dharma. We cling to this, you know, these concepts and these notions of uh, of who I am, even though those concepts and notions are perhaps based on Uh, accepting a great deal of tension and holding at the level of the body and comfortable you know patterns of thought in the mind but that forms us you know we're we identify ourselves with the speaker of the thought so when you pull the plug on the speaker uh, for many people initially frankly you know we're not really sure that's something that we want to embrace but, you know, that, that again is, you know, what I think the origin of certainly the fear.
0: So you're actually saying something quite radical here, which is that, and, and see if I have this correctly, that if we tune into this tactile, shimmering flow that you're describing, that our normal sense of solid identity won't hold up.
1: Well, I, you know, I think that's actually true, and I would, uh, you know, say that or to hear that uh, through the lens of dharma teachings. Because, you know, what lets go is the quality of mind uh, uh, that, you know, that causes limitation, that, you know, that causes pain, that has me believing that who I am is this egoic entity named I. You know, we all have the same name for that part of ourselves. You know, it's kind of poured somehow into my body like milk into a container, Right. And, you know, that's, that's you know, what is conventional and normal, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we have to function f- uh, from that place in the world. But, you know, the problem is that it's just very, very limiting. And there are these uh, much more open, uh, expansive, you know, dimensions of being, the, you know, that I feel are really our birthrights, right? And, uh, uh, you know, we have to be, I guess, you know, courageous enough for something to choose them and to, you know, go through the process of letting go of some of the holdings that, uh, you know, the resistances in the body, you know, letting go of the, uh, you know, fi- finding, you know, what, uh, what creates the thought flow in the mind, finding the areas of tension in the body that actually create that and starting to let go of those things, accepting ourselves, actually feeling, you know, body, really bringing it to life, this, a literally sensational presence, this feeling presence of body. And, yes, it is radical. What I find is that to the degree that I'm able to, in a sense, kindle an awareness of every little part of the body, you know, all at once, that's when consciousness naturally and spontaneously undergoes, uh, you know, these kinds of changes that we're talking about and alluding to uh, here. So for me, you know, Dharma practice is less trying to attain something than to let go of whatever it is that, uh, you know, I'm you know, unconsciously doing that's, you know, generating the experience of body and the thought patterns in the mind that keep me, frankly, suffering.
0: Now, right now, in this moment, somebody's listening. How could you help them listen in such a way that they were listening from an embodied place.
1: Yeah, well, you know, embodied anything, uh, what it shares, I mean, there's a couple of, you know, principles in common. You know, the first is, what happens if you include an awareness of the entire feeling presence of the body in whatever it is that you're doing? Because ordinarily what we find is that we exclude it. You know, what we do, we, we keep, Uh, We keep the awareness of sensations down. We block them out. We don't just softly relax and open into them. And to some degree, we may have to do that if we're, you know, doing something engaged in an activity where we really, really have to use the, uh, you know, use the mind. Uh, You know, use its capabilities and abilities. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, one of the great achievements of our species is we've learned how to, uh, you know, think conceptually. And again, now having said that, there comes a point of diminishing, you uh, returns. So, uh, embodied listening—it's just as you listen, let yourself also feel, you know, the entire body. So it's the entire body uh, that becomes almost the organ of hearing, and you can, you know, take that into ad seeing as well. And it, you know, if you can let yourself feel the entire body. You really relax into it, you know, head to foot. And honestly, Tammy, I mostly see that what's necessary for people to do that is to be given permission to do. And this goes back to what we were talking about is the somatophobia. But if you're able to do that, uh, just give yourself permission. Uh, and, And often when I'm, you know, talking to a group of people or working with students or whatever, often I just say that. You know, just give yourself permission to let yourself feel and it happens immediately in the room. There's more of that, uh, you know, feeling quality that comes present. So you just give yourself permission to feel. Then add sounds. You know, let sounds come in without losing the awareness of body. And then if you add vision, uh, you have these three primary sensory fields, and people can try this. It, you know, it's uh, it, it's actually quite easy. You let yourself do these three things simultaneously, and and open to the wholeness of the fields. So you feel the whole of your body. You hear everything that's here to be heard. You know, not shutting out, uh, what, the noises of the furnace or, uh, you know, neighbors, you know, shouting across the street. Actually embracing, open to everything. And the same thing with the visual field. With the visual field, it's interesting. If you really let yourself uh, look at the whole visual field all at once, uh, it's kind of a roughly elliptical uh, shape with sort of some fuzzy kinds of uh edges, but opening to the whole of the visual field where you in a sense see everything without seeing anything in particular, uh opening to the awareness of all the sounds and simultaneously feeling the body, uh, you know, that's a place where often that egoic perspective, the unrelenting egoic perspective, again there's nothing wrong with it except that it doesn't want to yield the floor when other parts of our being you know, want to express themselves. And, uh, you know, that usually just dissolves away very, very quickly when you're able to, in a sense, enter into uh, this merged awareness of these three primary fields.
0: Okay, this is very interesting, these three primary fields. In your work with embodiment training, is that what you mostly focus on, these three fields of physical sensation, the visual field, and then the field of sound?
1: You know, it is. And, uh, you know, what I realize that I'm giving short change to, uh, uh, you know, smell and, you know, and taste. And many people who, you know, enter into this, uh, uh, you know, sensorium of opening to all the, you know, all the fields at once and watching how that affects and actually dissolves uh, our conventional awareness of self. Uh, you, you know, many people will will want to add uh, add taste, add smell. It, it, you know, honestly, smell is my uh, you know least developed sense. I don't know if that's gender specific or not. If uh, uh, you know, mostly what I find is that women uh, that I you know work with really find that the inclusion of smell and and even just some mm, you know the feeling in the mouth of taste is is important as well. But It's true, those are the three fields that I pay attention to. And what gets interesting about that, if you can open to each of those fields, all of the fields, and have a a balanced awareness of them, so you could see it as something like an equilateral triangle. You know, uh, there's one field at each of the, the angles, and it's balanced. So it's not that sound is predominating, or body is predominating, it's the three of those get balanced out that's when uh you know this quality of you know rigid hardened sense of self seems to dissolve away now when you get imbalances in those fields and one of the major imbalances that we get is that we just really ignore the uh you know the field of tactility you know the body from head to foot you know the shimmering uh you know presence so if that triangle, in a sense, loses its equilaterally, its, its equilateralness, right? Uh, that's when we then start creating, you know, thoughts in the mind, uh, you know, that take us even further away from, you know, any real natural ability just to settle into, you know, that very relaxed merged state.
0: Well, it's interesting because as I'm here speaking with you i'm attempting this balance of these three fields and what i find is that i have to be very very open in order for that to happen
1: completely you know completely open and you know what you know again what i would suggest is you know functioning just from the perspective of the egoic mind, and, you know, honestly, I, you know, I don't like to give the egoic mind bad press because, you know, I'm afraid that what happens uh, in, you know, some spiritual circles, we think that the goal is to destroy the ego or, you know, you know, kill the mind. And, you know, that obviously isn't what we're wanting to do, but we are wanting to move into an awareness of, in a sense, how we have somewhat claustrophobically contracted Into, if you call it mind, if you call it body, if you call it core of being, you know, it's probably probably talking about the same things. And yes, what what occurs when you start uh, opening to the awareness of these three primary fields is that that contraction literally opens. You know, the Buddhists talk about you know the sunya states, the sunyata states, this very open, open dimension uh, of you know of being. So that does seem to occur, uh, you know, quite naturally. And it is. You get into this very open, very spacious, very dissolved, but strangely grounded, uh, you know, condition. And, you know, for me, it's it's just always felt like a birthright place. And out of that experience, a lot of the Dharma teachings and a lot of the Sufi teachings make a lot of sense to me.
0: So I think an experience that most people have is that they find their mind to be like some kind of broken record player playing over and over the same kind of thing and it seems like what you're saying is that if we can open and you use this word surrender quite a lot and i'd like to hear more about that word and why you use it but to these three fields in balance that that's an antidote to this repetitive thinking process that often we find ourselves in is that correct
1: yeah, yeah, my response is absolutely. And what that can effectively do, in a sense, is pull the plug on the monologizer who goes, as you're suggesting, on and on and on, uh, you know, at times ad nauseum. Certainly, look, at, certainly there's information that comes from, you know, that quality of mind and thoughts, almost like dreams, right? But what we're talking about is... Uh, you know, the awareness of a condition that often leads people to Dharma Halls, that, that we realize that the internal monologue of the mind is just driving us crazy. It's just going on and on and on, and and doesn't seem to stop. Now, you know, again, what gets interesting about this in terms of the body, and we can extend this again to the whole sensorium that's going to include visual field and, uh, you know, field of sounds, Uh, It's as though when we're lost in the mind, when that's in ascendancy, we have virtually no awareness of body. You know, we're literally out of touch with the sensations that go to fill the body. You know, it's kind of like a teeter-totter. If, uh, you know, the mind, the yattering is going on and on, and, you know, we know what that's like. We're, uh, you know, in a sense, checked out in that moment. There is... there's very very little awareness of body. The teeter totter shifts. <clears throat> excuse me. And we suddenly give ourselves permission to start feeling body again. In the sense, it's just shifting our focus or changing, you know, foreground, background, gestalt, and bringing, allowing feeling presence to come forward. And I, say, I, I say it this way: it's it, it's less for me to feel the body because that's that implies that I, this entity, am feeling. The body and really I think what works is that we just give the feeling presence permission to emerge and it comes forth forth, you know, it virtually blossoms forth into a central uh, position in experience and when it does that the teeter-totter shifts and that's when the thoughts in the mind start just uh, you, you know at times it's very much like literally pulling a plug on them and you know that can be a relief. For uh, uh, look at you know for all of us whether we're you know dharma students or not right.
0: And so the emphasis on this term surrender is that there's some kind of grip that we're surrendering. Or what's your view of it? True. Yeah. I
1: think that's true. Yeah, I think that's true, Tammy. And th- and that really uh, you know comes to me through you know all my years as. Uh, you know, my background is in is in uh, you know body oriented therapies. I was trained in uh, oh boy, a long time ago, 1976, uh, you know, with Ida Rolf. And you know, for me, what, you know, it's interesting. You know, sometimes I've joked. I I sometimes think I'm like a, a reformed smoker who who just goes on and on and praises the you know the delights and how much better it feels not to have tobacco in our system or something. And you know as a kid i- i wasn't in my body you know I was not an athlete I was not you know really you know a body kind of guy and it wasn't until my early twenties that I really started uh- you know well unearthing and reconnecting just this whole dimension of uh you know you know physical- you know presence and you know that obviously uh uh you know shifted so uh uh you know so very very much for me. And what I, you know, have come to understand is that, and this again, if I can, you know, speak, uh, uh, you know, with, you know, Dharma metaphors, we talk about reaction as that which, you know, creates suffering, that we're not accepting the reality as it is. And, uh, you know, Buddhists or Theravadans will say that the accumulation of these moments of reactions create what they call sankharas or contractions. You know, deep in the you know the core of the body mind. So this is what I feel that we're moving into, and you know, really working to let go. Now there's a certain amount of, well, I was trained as a Rolfer, There's a certain amount of uh, you know hands-on manipulation. You know, the whole realm of uh, of body-oriented you know therapies. Really, everybody's looking at this. How can we start letting go of some of the unnecessary tension there's a certain amount of direct intervention that can happen but I think ultimately to get down to the core of the contraction and this is what I've been doing you know as a sitting you know practitioner it involves playing with balance on the cushion because if you're playing with upright balance that allows you to let go without toppling over and I you know do feel that the primary action of meditation is not so much much in action at all, it's not so much something that we do as something that we're undoing, that we're letting go of, uh, or we're, you know, surrendering. And surrendering can never be forced. It really is a, uh, you know, just that, a, a, you know, letting go, like you're holding something in your hand, and then you just, ah, you know, you relax, you let go, you allow, and you accept. And and this is the part that gets tricky because I do see that, you know, ultimately the sitting practice you do is a surrender practice. And, you know, you establish your posture and you surrender to the breath and, uh, you know, things start moving in in the body. And then it's as though a current takes over. And then you can just, you know, go along with that and let it do whatever it needs to do. The tricky thing about a surrender practice, you don't want to say too much or give too many instructions or people will miss. The surrender, you can't say too little or people won't know, you know, really what, uh, uh, you know, we're talking about. But, uh, you, you know, very much, I, 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 yes, as you're, you know, suggesting, I do see the, you know, the process of spiritual unfolding or growth as very much of a letting go or, you know, a surrendering process uh, where kind of, all, you know, the kinks or uh, the uh, the blockages or the residues, they, they simply just start unwinding and letting go, you know, through the system. And as they do that that really alters and affects our experience of physical embodiment, but it also radically alters and affects uh, you know, our condition of consciousness.
0: Now, I want to talk more about what you've discovered as a rolfer, because I think that's interesting. There you are, you're working on people's bodies. They're coming in because they have some kind of pain, long-term physical tension. And I'm curious what you've discovered working with people in that way that has informed your embodiment training approach?
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. In uh, the early years around uh, Ida Rolf, uh, you know, much of the uh, focus of rolfing, uh, sure, you know, we we're all learning how to do the hands-on uh, sessions because that uh, caused the tissues to Uh, you know, relax, lengthen, come unstuck, uh, open change, uh, you know, for the structure to change. And we are after, you know, creating this more balanced kind of structure. That's what Ida was very, very keen on. She presented a concept that she called the line. And she really presented that as the highest value to which the work could aspire. Now, what she was getting at is that if we could – uh, figure out a way to be in our bodies in such a way that the structure of the body would be could be supported by gravity rather than our having to fight with it. That frees up everything, at, at, both at the levels of the body and at the level of you know of consciousness. Uh, and you know, think about it for, for a moment. Like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, uh, you know, a body like that would have to be exerting constant muscular tension. And, and and think and think of it also as many meditators, who sit, you know, with a somewhat slumped posture and the head, uh, uh, you know, kind of falling over. That's actually a very popular po- uh, posture in Southeast Asia. And you know, the problem you know, that I see with that is that we're having then to brace ourselves from really just crumbling and collapsing into the earth. And that bracing is done by muscular holding and tension that numbs out the awareness of body, that creates more tension and creates thoughts in in the mind. So, you know, to some degree, I took those early, uh, you know, the, the early teachings and the notions of, uh, you know, Dr. Rolfe, uh, you, you know, to heart. And, you know, her vision, she actually didn't want Rolfing to become a uh, kind of a glorified form of physiotherapy that, you know, really worked on symptoms and pain. It happens to work that way, you know, so there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, practitioners, you know, really, uh, you know, offering that kind of service. But this whole notion of what she was really after was this bringing of the body to a condition of uprightness that would allow you to let go. And she you know, believed that that would, in a sense, maybe kindle, if I'm remembering this accurately, which he used to refer to as evolutionary energies, and, uh, you know, which makes some sense, because evolution, as much as we talk about it as wanting it to be sort of the growth and expansion of consciousness in its graphic and most simple form. The evolution of human being is just coming from, uh, you know, the horizontal spine ever more up into an upright vertical one.
0: So now, when you're talking about the line, you're saying that yes. within the human body, in front of the spine or in the center of the body, there's some type of...
1: You know, it, it, it doesn't exist as any, type, any kind of anatomical coordinate. And, you know, what it is, is a you know, situation... Well, you know, it's interesting. Traditionally, uh, uh, we all tried to figure out the line just from the point of view of structure. And you know there are there are Buddhist schools. I know some schools in Japan that really really work with a very very straight, uh, you know, spine and the head sitting on top. In you know in your you know in your sitting uh, sitting practice, uh, you know the difficulty with that is that sometimes what I've seen it can get it, it can get you know a bit. Are rigid, but certainly the line would involve, you know, stacking the major segments of the body one on top of each other, just in the same way that a child builds a snowman. But I don't think that structural, uh, you know, principles alone are enough to give us what we're after. And it, you know, also, I, I mean, it's interesting that you know that we're mentioning Rolfing because you know, Ida Rolf is a you know a somatics teacher. I, I actually have always thought of her as you know, one of my most important spiritual teachers as well. First of all, it was this notion of upright balance that then I took into Dharma practice, figuring out that, oh, what sitting practice must be about is learning how to sit in these ways in which gravity can support you so you can actually let go and relax. Now, the other piece to this puzzle that's very, very important, uh, you know, for me and my practices at this point it was another statement that she actually said that during, I think, one of my very first training classes. And someone asked her about breathing. And, you know, how does a Roth body breathe? And her answer was something like, in a truly balanced body, uh, as you breathe, movement can occur at every joint in the body in response to the breath. And she said that actually included the sutures in the skull and the joints between the small bones and the feet. And I thought that was probably a bit... Crazy, But, you know, over the years, I've had, you know, those kinds of experiences. So, you know, in a sense, it's that, you know, that I bring to, you know, Dharma practice and the sitting practice. And I'm going a little bit off from the question that you asked, but it's an important piece that I'd like like people to hear.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, what you're saying that's so unusual is, I mean, I've never heard a person define meditation as a surrender practice. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is it seems in what you're describing is that when we can discover this line, whether we're sitting or standing, that we're in a state of surrender if this line is active and awakened in us. Is that correct, would you say?
1: Yeah, it becomes a lot easier to, in a sense, to sit back, uh, obviously, you know, allowing, you know, breath to breathe through the body. You know, over and over and over again, and then what needs to shift or occur does so naturally and spontaneously. Again, as I was saying earlier, you know, I don't see these practices that I'm trying to perfect a skill or attain some kind of uh, state, you know, kind of you know, craft it from uh, from the ground up. More than anything, it's letting go of you know what I'm unconsciously doing. It's a lot of reaction. Uh, You know, literally darned into the tissues of the body And, you know, letting that go And then surrendering to the, you know, to whatever wants to occur Now, you know, just the other piece about, you know, what I call the line Yeah, in sitting practice, you know, I, I work a lot, first of all, with alignment Even the Buddha says that, you know, sit with the spine straight Okay And the whole reason for doing that is that you can then relax Literally, you can relax, and relaxation is nothing no more or less complicated than surrendering, that word again, the weight of the body to the pull of gravity, just to let down. Because if you're in an upright, balanced or balancing place, you can let go like that and you don't topple over. But the third component that's critical is then realizing, and this goes back to that statement of Ida Rolf's, that the body can stay in constant motion, while you're sitting on your cushion, and and this you know this is the point that I'm wanting to make. You know, when I sit and look out over a group of uh, you know sitting meditators or work with uh, uh, people, the most common thing that strikes me is how overly frozen and still people are sitting in their bodies, as though you know we've you know come to think that you know part of the goal of the meditation is to emulate or to look like a stone garden statue of the Buddha. And this kind of freezing of the body, I mean, you see it, heads don't move very much. You know, the spine doesn't move very much. And all that's doing, I believe, is encasing, you know, the breath. You You know, really keeping it from letting go. And it keeps us from surrendering to this breath It just wants to keep breathing through us, and a breath surrendered to becomes a potent force of healing, both at the level of the body and at the level of consciousness. And, you know, breath held in and imprisoned, in a sense, by unnecessarily inert flesh, meaning that we're sitting there and, you know, there's no movement. There's no movement at uh, at the joints. You know how the force that causes a wave just moves... Effortlessly through a body of water, and the water just, you know, let's go. It's very malleable, and it lets this force cause the wave. This is what I'm, uh, you know, wanting to bring into, you know, Dharma practice, or you know, really into our lives. It's not just sitting on the cushion. It's of course the, you know, the rest of the mindfulness, uh, you know, practice uh, uh, as well. But even just thinking about the spine you know one of the you know principles that i'll work with is that uh, you know there are joints between every vertebra of the spine and they're not unlike joints anywhere else in the body they're designed to move so in every breath there can be uh, a rocking undulating expansive quality and in the beginning sometimes people may have to uh, sort of encourage this but after a while it becomes utterly natural and you realize not allowing this constant motion to occur, you know, within a sitting practice, you're actually in reaction and are, you know, blocking and, uh, you know, inhibiting. Uh, uh, you know what the practice, as far as I can tell, is designed to, you know, to make happen. And now, in truth, this quality of uh, uh, in, inviting, you know, accepting, Natural, spontaneous, resilient motion throughout the entire body, never coming to rest in the process of, you know, sitting meditation, that I feel, you know, at this point is a fairly radical idea.
0: Now, an interesting part of the embodiment training that you teach involves gazing, a Sufi practice where we gaze at our partner or at someone that we're practicing gazing with. Talk a little bit about that and how that relates to embodiment.
1: Yeah. Okay. It, uh, you know, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, my, you know, it's funny. In some ways, I, you know, I think of myself as kind of straddling this uh, this sort of common river. But you know, I've got one foot firmly planted in uh, in Dharma practices, and the other foot, you know, planted in this uh, you know realm of uh, of these ecstatic gazing practices. But I see them as fundamentally informing each other and that, you know, it's all part of the same uh, common river. Now, you know, the interesting thing about the gazing practice, and how does the gazing practice come into my life? Utterly by chance. A great good friend of mine are sitting at opposite ends of the sofa. At uh, uh, one point we were, we, we were you know, really great friends and, and, and really probing what, you know, authentic behavior might be like. And one day we're sitting at either ends of the sofa, And we turn and we actually look at each other and hold each other's gaze for a moment. And you know what happens when often that happens in, you know, you're having a latte in Starbucks and you look at someone and you hold each other's gaze, you look away immediately very quickly. And I remember Phil saying, whoa, what was that? And Why did we look away? And I said, well, I looked away because I think I feel too much with that kind of intensified contact. And he said, yeah, that's true for me too, but, you know, what's wrong with that? And, you know, we, uh, you know, this is my first, uh, you know, great friend in this practice. We explored it, uh, you know, in in a lot of depth, and we spent a lot of time there. When people come together and hold the gaze and get over the awkwardness that immediately causes most of us to turn away, what starts happening is, again, You know, it sounds like a repeat of what we've been saying up till now, but the conventional sense of egoic separation just starts dissolving away. And, you know, we start entering into a much more shared, what Rumi would call the consciousness of union, that feels very dissolved and merged with everything. And this is, it just happens with this practice. Now, it is also an extraordinarily... uh, body-stimulating practice. And, uh, you know, his background, Rumi, you know, talks some about a, a principle that his father, who was is, who is a very, very accomplished mystic in his own, his own right, taught him. And it was a concept called Maia. And, the, uh, you know, the great Rumiologist, Anne Maria Schimmel, describes Maia as uh, this notion that God, or, you know, whatever word works for you, cannot be found in the mind alone, cannot be found in the heart alone. Now, both of those statements are pretty radical sounding for a Buddhist to hear the first one, for a Sufi to hear the second one, but the, uh, the principle is that uh, God cannot be found in the mind alone, cannot be found in the heart alone, but needs to be felt in every part of the body. Now, one of the things that's extraordinary about the gazing practice is that it does that it radically stimulates, uh, you know, the awareness of, you know, physical presence. And in that awareness, we're talking about the teeter-totter. When physical presence, when you really stimulate strongly the awareness of body as this unified field of shimmering presence, mind, in a sense, just, you know, shuts off. Uh, I did some Dharma practices in my early 20s. I opened... uh, to the gazing practice and moving, pr- movement practices in probably my late 20s and, uh, uh, you know, had some very, very deep immersions into, uh, you know, the gazing uh, experience and then when I got back into Dharma practice especially the body-oriented Dharma practices it was a lot of joy and gratitude and I realized, oh my God, this is what the gazing practice is also doing So, you know, that's why I say, in a sense, you know, I'm kind of straddling this river that, you know, usually people are Dharma practitioners or they're ecstatic Sufi practitioners. But I see the, uh, uh, you know, how both, you know, frankly, not only inform each other, but hold kind of a missing, uh, a missing key to the completion of the other. It's, you know, it's that kind of thing.
0: Well, let's talk more about gazing. So you're working with a partner. And what do you do? Do you just relax and look?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And in some ways, that's almost all the, uh, you know, the instructions that, you know, that I I like to give. Uh, Because, you know, again, usually what will happen, uh, you know, people will sit down and, you know, they'll start entering into the practice. For example, you know, I might do an evening uh, presentation. I often talk about Rumi. I talk about the relationship with Rumi and Shams. You know, it was uh, for a long time a great mystery of what they were actually doing together but you know, reading through the whole of his poetry it's everywhere you know gazing holding uh holding the gaze of your great friend the dissolving that occurs it's absolutely everywhere uh you know in the poetry and then get and then invite people into the practice you know, inevitably what first happens is there's a lot of nervousness and a lot of kind of tittering and giggling that that can often happen as we are not accustomed to being this real and this embodied in connection with another person who's doing exactly the same thing. So, uh, you know, usually people can go through a period of awkwardness, but then something just happens, and it's very, very simple. Partly what I love about this practice is that it is so, you know, simple. You get through your nervousness, and then something happens, and you just settle in. Body comes forward, it's as though you're looking at your partner from a different place from what you ordinarily look. It's as though the, you know, the body becomes the organ of vision. And then what naturally starts occurring is that uh, a physical sensations just come uh, up to the surface and passing away, up to the surface and passing away. And you may get in touch with different parts of yourself that, that ordinarily you don't feel. You may get in touch with a scared child or a wise older person or... You know different aspects. It's kind of like going on an archaeological dig because you're just allowing, uh, you know, body really, really, truly, to be here, and it just keeps coming to the surface and, uh, you know, passing away. And at the level of mind, the separateness between you and your partner, you know, it, it's tricky to, to really talk about this, Tammy, because in truth, I don't understand what this is. I just know that that quality of separation. Uh, starts lifting, you and your partner into in, enter into this shared experience of what, again, Rumi would call the consciousness of union. And it's just a very, very natural condition. And the longer you do it, the deeper you go is, is how it works. I mean, you, you know, look at like sitting practice, the gazing practice. You know, you have a moment or two, and it always feels good. But the real depths of the practice... Practices come about through, you know, long hours or long, uh, uh, you know, long days or, you know, retreats that, uh, you know, that go on for a week. But, you know, with, with, the, with the gazing practice, I realized it was just so extraordinarily healing. You know, healing, again, I, you know, I come from a roughing background. Well, this allows deep holdings in the body that you never even knew about to come to the surface and pass away and allows us very, very quickly and dynamically to, uh, you know, have an experience of dissolving the conventional sense of self, you know, that hardened, you know, rigid place that we function from most of the time, and actually have an experience of these very dissolved sunyata states.
0: Now I get how the experience of the self dropping away, a sense of union with the person you're gazing with, would emerge, but how do holdings in the body drop away through the practice of gazing?
1: You know what? Yeah, yeah. it's, It's a good question. What seems to happen is that in the gazing practice, what you do, you just utterly start relaxing into and accepting yourself and your experience of body exactly as it is. Meaning, you don't try to gussy it up. You don't try to make yourself feel how I would like to feel or how I think I should feel. What you know, the practice does it puts you in touch. With what's real, and and look, what's real is that for most people, sure, there's going to be shimmer, and there's going to be a lot of residues from you know these patterns. Uh, some of them are just purely structural patterns of holding intention. Some of them are patterns of holding intention that have been fueled by emotional kinds of reactions or energetic kinds of uh, uh, you know reactions. Those kinds of things. So you get in touch, you know, with with the reality as it is. And that's what allows the, the the holdings to start coming undone. You know, I've I've always felt it's a very strange law that you know governs transformation. If I can actually feel into and accept myself exactly as I am, you know, really just feel this and relax, it starts changing on its own. And the corollary to that, of course, is if I start trying to change something about myself, I mostly only succeed in fueling uh, the persistence of you know whatever this condition is, it's you know it's causing difficulty. So again, it's a very spontaneous, natural, organic process, and it's a bit like connecting with a current in a river. And okay, you connect with the body through the gaze, and then you see, oh my God, it's just start it's starting to shift around all over the place, uh, bodily sensations. Start shifting around. The visual field gets very, very interesting. It starts shifting around. And what keeps you, in a sense, on track uh, is that you just keep letting go and allowing it.
0: Now, of course, this practice sounds so beautiful, and I'm wondering why people don't do more gazing practice. And, you know, part of what's occurring to me is that it's very, very intimate feeling and that we're, you know, not accustomed to having that kind of... Tremendous intimacy and potentially even sexual arousal with people in a practice environment when you actually look into another person's eyes It you know it's as I said very intimate and can be very erotic
1: You know both both of those uh, You know are certainly uh, uh, True it it forces us to actually feel what we're What's going on in our bodies? And yes, it is extremely intimate And, you know, certainly when I, you know, work with people, especially, you know, people who are then wanting to go out and share this practice with others, uh, you know, I stress that, you know something, this is an extraordinarily intimate, I I mean, the ultimately uh, intimate uh, sharing of, you know, energy with uh, another person. So, you you know, you really, (laughs) you need, when you're exploring this practice, for both participants to know what you're doing. You know, I I don't know about you, I've... Encountered people in my life who kind of use eye contact as kind of an aggressive, uh, uh, you know, sort of thing, and you can feel that immediately. What we're talking about is something completely different: is you know, holding the gaze and letting go. And yes, it does get intimate. And the nature of the practice is then just to allow sensations to come and go and pass away. Yes, there will be, uh, you, you know, people. Who may, uh, you know, feel some kind of karmic connection with, uh, you know, with another person that, that may lead into uh, into relationship, but it but it doesn't you know necessarily work that way, and it certainly doesn't always work that way by any means. I've had a number of what I call great friends in my life, whom I've met and who wanted to explore this practice with me as much as uh, as uh, you know I did, and. Of those, about five or six of them, two of them, you know, also were, you know, physical, you know, lovers of mine. But the others simply, you know, simply weren't. That, you know, that energy just, you know, isn't there. Now, certainly when, you know, when I teach this, you know, I teach it in a, you know, workshop or retreat context. And, you know, I'll tell people, look, when you start, you can do this practice with anybody, and what likely will happen is that you're going to find certain people that you just simply go deeper with, or that you know there's there's deeper kinds of uh, you know dissolvings that occur, and those people may become friends. Uh, you know, generally you you know open in a way that's appropriate, and the karmic conditions of your life allow. You know, the gazing practice is not a practice to be feared because if I look into someone else's eyes. Uh, you know, we're going to run off together to the Caribbean or something. You know, that, again, is a somatophobic uh, kind of fear that keeps us from opening to these kinds of practices. Look, having said that, what's also true is that, you know, most of us, we have so much stored in the body that we haven't given ourselves permission to feel. And it's going to, you know, come up, To the surface, whether it's emotions such as anger or fear or sadness or, you know, held in energies that, uh, uh, you you know, may feel that they could be relieved in a, you know, in a traditional, uh, you know, sexual kind of embrace, and I'll work with that with couples who are, uh, you know, have that kind of, you know, experience going on, but it certainly is not not any kind of, uh, you know, goal. To, you know to this practice nor is it something to be feared you know what you know what's to be feared is everything that's going to come up and you know a lot of times i work with people and they say oh you know i really want to start feeling all of this all of the body that you're talking about and that's great and often what happens as soon as they start feeling it they become very aware of why they haven't wanted to <laughs> you know because the energies are strong you know the feelings uh, are there but as i said either we face you know, the reality of our karma, which is the condition that we're in right now, or we, you know, turn literally turn our eyes away from it, avert our gaze, and then enshrine it forever. Uh, it, it, you know, and that seems to be the, it, you know, the trade-off that, uh, it, you know, that happens. You know, the other thing that's interesting about the gazing state is, and I, again, I don't know how to explain it, but it, it, it has always appeared to me once I settle into that really, you know, deeply with someone, it's really impossible to behave unethically in Mm -hmm. that place if one is truly softening and continuing to surrender into this shared current that starts getting uh, generated from the contact, the friction of, uh, you know, of the gaze.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So it's a a wonderful practice, but yes, it brings up lots of uh, fears and, uh, you know, assignations of taboo.
0: Now I just have two final questions for you, Will. Here's the first one. In my own life, a path of embodiment has been the focus of my spiritual practice. It's been absolutely yeah. critical for me and it's been the most transformative yeah. kind of work that I've encountered. And yet it's been curious to me, you know, here I've been focused on a type of embodiment approach for the last decade or so. And what's curious to me is that it's not more popular in spiritual life and spiritual approaches, that it's a very small part of the population that seems really interested and committed to the embodied approach to spiritual transformation. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it it is curious, isn't it? And and it's actually, it's not only a small, uh, well, it's a tiny percentage of the populace at large, but it's even in some ways a, a relatively small percentage of you know, spiritual practitioners. Uh, yeah. Of uh, what you know, of whatever you know, stripe or or ilk, and you know, a lot of that, you know, Tammy, is that I, you know, feel that tradi- traditional spiritual practice has mostly been couched in transcendent terms. That, in a sense, what we're uh, the goal of the practice is to transcend this dimension and uh, and I don't know what, but you know but uh, you know enter into or encounter a you know a different quality of experience unfettered by the heavy uh, grossness of uh, nature the you know the world of the world we live in and and by extension our bodies and you know my own experience has been that you uh, that you know that approach well it does it, it never gave me what you know what i'm after and the whole idea of opening into the body it's much more of opening into what is imminent what's right now there's no goal you know 20, you know if i do my practice 20 years from now maybe i'll i'll be okay you know it doesn't work that way it's always about right now this is the only time we can feel uh you know that we can feel the body but you know i My own, you know, feeling about you know why it's still we're so tentative about entering into and embracing this is that it's powerful. It is very, you know, it's palpably potent. The sensations that you kindle and then they become doorways to some of these deeper uh, energies uh, of you know being of body. They're there. They're natural. You know we want you know i don't want to you know leave any stone untur- you know unturned right they're there but these kinds of energies really radically shake us up and sometimes i feel that what a lot of people want from you know a therapeutic experience or a bodywork experience or you know or for that matter even uh, you know a spiritual experience is to have kind of the, some of the rough edges of our life smoothed out but you know the core uh, you know, thank you very much. I'm fine, just how I am. And the kinds of practices that I'm talking to, and just this kind of attitude that embraces body as uh, as sensation, as you know, as tactile presence and constant, uh, you know, motion. They uh, they they don't just smooth out the rough edges of our life. You know, sometimes you know, somewhat pejoratively, you know, I'll refer to that as, you know, sometimes we like to, you know, rearrange the furniture in our prison cell, right? And and, and that that can be good. That's you know, it's a good thing to do. But I'm more interested, what would it be? What would happen? How could I, you know, actually uh, emerge out of the, you know, bars of the prison? What would that experience as human being, you know, be like in this moment? Well, it would be very vitally alive, I know that. It would be an experience that would uh, be aware of the entire body from head to foot. I mean, the sensations are there. Why don't we feel them, right? And to hear and to, uh, and to see. But, yes, it, it involves kind of a radical uh, you know, shift in our, in our experience of who we are, what we are, you know, what it is to be alive as, uh, as human beings.
0: Okay, and just one final question for you, sure. which is, our program's called Insights at the Edge, and I'm yeah. always curious to know what people's personal edge is. So in your case, in terms of this process of embodiment, what's your edge? Where's that? And that's that's, that's yeah. a really
1: interesting question, because um, I think where I am, and it does feel like I'm way out on on an edge here, is actually a return to, again, the most basic Buddhist text that there is, the Satipatthana Sutra, that culminates in this phrase, as you breathe in, breathe in through the whole body. As you breathe out, breathe out through the whole body. And, you know, that has uh, propelled me into, you know, embracing two things that, that aren't necessarily all that, you know, embraced in conventional life, in spiritual practice, let alone conventional life. And one is, well, we've been talking about opening to the awareness, uh, just you know, letting go through the whole body to each and every uh, sensation in the body to feel that. But even in a sense almost more radically, there is no way that, we, okay, you can't breathe through the whole body if you can't feel it, for starters, right? And the second part of that is you cannot possibly experience a breath that can breathe through the whole body if there is holding, stillness, and frozen resistance at any of the joints of the body, so that in many ways my sitting practice right now—it's you know—it's not becoming—you know—I don't want to say it's becoming dancerly because it is you know—it isn't necessarily you know large uh, uh, you, you know motions, but constantly uh, you know the spine is uh, is moving on the inhalations and exhalations, and I'm constantly looking out for where in my body are the blind spots that are not participating in this coordinated, undulating motion that's utterly natural when we let go, right? And so, yeah, so in answer to your question, you know, my, my cutting edge, this notion of, you know, in a sense, you know, I feel like I'm on, uh, you know, something of a mission uh, to eradicate the epidemic of frozen stillness you know, from the, from the Dharma halls, the Zendos, the, you know, retreat centers uh, of the world, because that will bring, you know, allowing the body to breathe, you know, almost amoeba-like. You know, the, the motions are there. And to, you know, really let go of these places of uh, stillness and holding, that's what, you know, I believe can be truly transformational, you know, for people to start bringing into their sitting practice.
0: Wonderful. I've been speaking with Will Johnson. He has created a new audio learning series with Sounds True. It's called Awakening the Body, the Path of Somatic Surrender, and it's filled with guided practices as well as teachings and instruction on gazing practice, all available at SoundsTrue.com. Will, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for this. Oh, you're
1: welcome. It was really fun to do this with you, Tammy. Yeah, an undulating
0: conversation. Thank you.
1: An undulating conversation. Hallelujah.
0: (laughs) SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.